You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. And I remember the speaker, the speaker's present somewhere, telling me just 10 minutes ago, he really understands now more about the Senate. We have different rules. I love the House of Representatives. I never wanted to be the House of Representatives here. I want to be the Senate. I want to be in the Senate where you can have unlimited debate, where any senator on either side on any issue can stand up and talk until they drop. And the record is held by the presiding officer, Senator Thurman. 20. 18 minutes. seldom asked to be an after-dinner speaker, too, I might add. enthralled by the Senate chamber itself, the walls themselves. Oh, if they could speak, what could they tell us? What would they tell us? And uh, I think of the great men and women who have served there, great men and women of my time. When I first came to the Senate, there was Margaret Chase Smith of Maine, one woman. And uh, I think of the, I think of uh, Senator Richard Russell. I think of uh, Senator um, um, Norris Cotton, Senator George Aiken, uh, Senator Mike Mansfield, Senator Johnson, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson. These men were there when I first came to the Senate. That was when men ran for the Senate to be a senator, not to become president. They ran to be a senator, and they loved the Senate. That's the kind of men that were there when I came came to the Senate. And, of course, it has a great history of uh, the, the great triumvirate of senators, um, Webster, Calhoun, and Clay. And I would also add Tom, uh, Thomas Benton of Missouri uh, with others there as the great senators. But that Senate is the forum where the people speak. And where senators can speak as long as their feet will hold them. And if their feet won't hold them, they can sit down and get unanimous consent to speak at their desk. That is the protection of the people's liberties. As long as there is a place where one can speak as loudly as he wishes, and as long as his lungs will last, uh, there we can be sure the people's liberties will endure. This is a live look at the Senate floor where Democrats are continuing their filibuster, calling for a vote on a measure that would bar suspected terrorists from buying guns. The filibuster has been going since just after 1120 Wednesday morning when Connecticut Democrat Chris Murphy took the floor. I'm at my wit's end. I've had enough. I've had enough of the ongoing slaughter of innocents, and I've had enough of inaction in this body. Every shooting is different. And so I'm going to remain on this floor until we get some signal, some sign, that we can come together on these two measures, that we can get a path forward on addressing this epidemic in a meaningful, bipartisan way. Let's bring in Nancy Cordes in our Washington bureau. Nancy, we heard Senator Murphy reference specific measures. What is he calling for? 
Hi, Elaine. Well, what he wants are votes on a couple of amendments uh, that Democrats have been pushing for for years. The first one has to do with barring uh, people who are on a terrorist watch list, as you just saw uh, Dean Reynolds explain, from getting a gun, from being able to buy that gun. Uh, this is a measure they've put forth in the past. It has failed. Republicans have their own measure. It's pretty different. And beyond that, Democrats would like a vote on closing the gun show loophole in background checks. This means that whenever you go to a gun show to buy a gun, you don't have to get a background check. So that's also something they've been pushing for for a long time. He wants uh, to ensure that both of those will get a vote on the Senate floor soon. And he says he's not leaving until he gets those assurances from Republicans. So there is Senator Murphy as we speak. He said he wasn't going anywhere. We've saw, uh, seen other speakers since the filibuster started. What are the rules, Nancy, for keeping the floor? The rules are basically that he can't leave. Uh, he can ask a question of another Democrat and let them sort of hold forth. But he has to stay there on the Senate floor. And uh, depending on uh, what a stickler the, the, the presiding officer in the Senate is being at that moment, he's not even allowed to really sit down. He has to stay standing, which means uh, obviously he can't leave to go to the bathroom. Uh, someone can bring food into him, but he can't leave to get any. Um, and so th the question is, how long does his stamina hold out? Now, unlike uh, some other senators who we've seen attempt long filibusters like this, like Ted Cruz uh, or Rand Paul, he is getting some breaks from time to time because there have been dozens of Democrats who have joined him in this crusade. Uh, he sort of took some of them by surprise when he announced that he was doing this this morning, uh, but they really rallied behind him. In fact, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker said, I've cleared my schedule today and tonight. I'm here with you. I'm going to come speak. And so uh, they've all been sort of taking turns spelling him uh, and all you know, unified in this message that uh, after the tragedy in Orlando, uh, that new gun control measures need to be considered. So, Nancy, that was going to be my question. He sort of surprised his fellow Democrats, it sounds like. He did. They didn't all know that he was going to do this today. But at the same time, they weren't all that surprised. Chris Murphy uh, represents Connecticut, the state that was home, of course, to the tragic Sandy Hook massacre where 26 people, 20 children lost their lives. And he has kind of been on this crusade ever since. Uh, gun legislation has become, uh, I would say, his number one um, issue in the Senate. And so he speaks on a regular basis uh, about gun control on the Senate floor, especially after a mass shooting like this one. Uh, but this morning he just said enough is enough uh, and headed to the Senate floor. We don't know uh, when exactly he planned to do this uh, or if he's taking measures to make sure that uh, he can stay on that Senate floor as long as he wants, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I think I do. <laughs> but uh, but, you know, he, he seems to be going strong now uh, in uh, what's the eighth or ninth hour of this filibuster. All right. So uh, just I know people are going to be asking just to be specific and clear, even if someone else starts speaking, he can't even take a bathroom break. No, he cannot take a bathroom break. And in the past, when uh, senators uh, have attempted something like this, there have always been questions about, you know, whether they're wearing depends or what they're doing uh, to, you know, to, to stay, to hang in there. Um, obviously, uh, yeah. you know, uh, we'll just leave it to your imagination uh, what uh, Senator Murphy is doing, if anything, in this situation. And I guess uh, we'll get our answer if he is still there on the Senate floor come uh, four or five or six o'clock in the morning. As you noted, though, yeah, Senator Murphy coming from uh, Connecticut and uh, everyone remembers, obviously, as you mentioned, the Sandy Hook massacre. Uh, we will see and continue to watch this picture throughout the night here. We'll see how long he's able to continue. Nancy Cordes, thank you so much. You're welcome, Elaine. Bridging the political gap. I'm Ryan Walsh, your host. And this week we are going to be talking a little different about uh, an issue, the filibuster that has been in the news quite a bit over the last, uh, I don't know, six or seven months <clears throat> since the Senate became a 50-50 Senate with the, the tiebreaker being in the Democrats' hand with uh, Vice President Harris. And you're hearing a lot of talk about it being a racist tool and uh, let me translate that to you. It is a, a, a 
a deal where the Democrats are trying to figure out a way to get rid of the filibuster because they don't like the fact that they don't have the votes to, to, to force their agenda down the throats of the American people. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm getting ready to show you something um, that will show you that this is a two-way street depending on which side you're on and who's in power and who's not. So it's not something exclusive to them. But when you start hearing the word racist and screaming about the filibuster having a racist history, that's generally speaking uh, where they're going. And the reason that I started this broadcast this, this week out with uh, the senator from Connecticut's uh, fight about gun control is that it is not a racist uh, uh, thing because it's a tool. It's a legislative tool. That's what it is. Now, the fact that at times people who were fighting uh, civil rights used it effectively does not therefore make it a racist thing. It can't be a thing. It's sort of like a gun. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. Um, a gun doesn't do anything. A filibuster is a tool, a legislative tool. And um, we're going to show you how it's been used through the years. And it's, I think, a good thing because it forces compromise. It forces you to listen to the minority viewpoint. Does that mean that always it's a good thing, like in the case of civil rights, no, I, you know, I'm, you're talking to a city council member who supported removing the Confederate flag from the dome in South Carolina. I get that my own senator who I adored, Strom Thurmond, used the filibuster to stop civil rights and that it was used very effectively in the 60s to stall it. And that, that Lyndon Johnson had to do a lot of work to get around it. But as Patrick Moynihan once said, Madison didn't design the government to be easy. He meant it to be rigorous and, and lots of debate and lots of procedure. You need to ask the question, do you want to live in a country where the minority has no way to defend itself, no way to, to at least be heard? And that's what the Senate is. You know, I, I, I always am interested when I hear people talk about, you know, that the Senate is, is not equal representation. Well, that was the deal, right? That, you know, if you're, if you're in a small state, you agree to come into the union because the Senate was there where you were equally represented. The House is where you have uh, 54 seats from California because it's the biggest state. California, the Senate is where everybody has equal representation. And in the Senate, you have rules that protect a minority of the senators and their viewpoints so that you always have this rigorous debate going on. And I understand why these senators are defensive about the possibility of losing the filibuster. And I think they need to think twice about it because we've already seen uh, what the nuclear option would do in changing the rules and 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 making the Senate basically a glorified House of Representatives. We don't need that. We need the Senate to be exactly what it was designed by the founding fathers to be, the breaks, where people have to think. And as Robert Byrd said at the opening of this deal, this is the House where a senator can get on the floor and talk until he drops. And, you know, God love him, Strom Thurmond, 24 hours and 18 minutes, fighting the Civil Rights Bill in, in, in 57. He has the record for staying on there for the longest. Is it something that was for something that he, you know, was in the right about? No, it wasn't. But he, he got up there and said his piece. But it's been used by these advocates for gun control and for advocates against gun control. You'll see Bernie Sanders use it. You see Ted Cruz use it. Senators from all sides and persuasions get up there and make their case for as long as they can make it. And in that way, all of us are the better for the compromises that can exist. Let's just take a look at the, at, at the filibuster and the current debate. And I can show you where people are on either side of this issue constantly. But you're going to hear some cases being made here about whether or not the filibuster is racist. And the first thing you need to look at is that's just trying to inflame emotions. One of the problems we've got in government today is just inflaming emotions instead of putting thought into what you're saying, trying to make your case, trying to figure out a way to get people to say the filibuster needs to go. But again, as I say, it's a tool, a tool to protect the minority. The video we are about to show you comes with this footnote. Mitch McConnell is not an historian.
Or you argue the filibuster is not rooted in racism. Historians differ on this. Are you concerned about the perception? If it is used against advancing voting rights, certainly the public perception is that Republicans are going to use this tool to make it harder for black people to vote. Yeah, actually, historians do not agree. It has no racial history at all. None. So there's no dispute among historians uh, about that. Back with us, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Eugene Robinson. And Eugene, no racial history at all. Uh, The filibuster record, 24 hours and 18 minutes on the Senate floor set by segregationist Mm -hmm. Senator Strom Thurmond to try to stop and failing to stop the Civil Rights Act of 1957. And we could go on and on. We could, yes, yes. The ghost of uh, Strom Thurmond is 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 laughing at that, at that uh, absurd misreading of history. So, of course, it does have a racist history. Look, I, you know, Claire may have a different view, having served in the Senate, but I'm no fan of the filibuster, and 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 especially now that the Senate is just a small less efficient version of the House, where everybody votes along party lines, and nobody. You know, the the minority doesn't try to um, uh, meet the majority halfway. Uh, So I would be perfectly content if 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 Democrats just got rid of it at the minimum. They need to 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 modify the filibuster rules and make them talk and make the make the minority produce 41 votes on the floor to hold up legislation or something like that. But something something's got to happen. This is a ridiculous situation. This is one of those cases in politics where you'd be like, people like to split hairs. Uh, I think Mitch McConnell's right. It is not racist, and every historian who's worth their great thought will tell you that um, the filibuster is not a racist thing because it's a tool. It's not something that you could say is, is racist in and of itself. I think uh, Eugene Robinson and uh, Lawrence O'Donnell can, can say, you know, has, has a racist history in, in that as a tool, it was used very effectively to fight civil rights in the 1960s and in the 1950s, and, and Strom Thurmond uh, did that. It was August of 1957, and a senator took the floor here in this very chamber. He'd had a remarkable record. He'd served as a Democratic senator, as a Dixiecrat senator, and as a Republican senator before he finally retired. And he served many years. In 1957, he was on the floor of the Senate to take his last stand. It was August. And it was a confrontation he had been preparing for for a long time. He was a veteran of World War II, one of the few in the chamber this time, at that time rather. And he was clearly a man devoted to his country and had shown real courage and serving as an officer in World War II. But his job on that day was to speak on the floor of the Senate for a long time. He'd been preparing for it. He'd taken daily steam baths trying to dehydrate his body so that he could stand on the Senate floor for a long time, even absorb fluids without needing to take a break to go to the restroom. He arrived for the battle armed with throat lozenges to stave off hoarseness, and he held the floor longer than any single senator ever has, even to this day, 24 hours and 18 minutes. For what principled purpose did this senator take such pains and preparation? For what noble reason did he grind the world's greatest deliberative body to a full-scale halt for more than 24 hours? in order to defend Jim Crow racial discrimination and deny equality to African-Americans. Despite his efforts, the Senate would go on to pass the Civil Rights Act of 1957, the first federal civil rights law in nearly a century since the Reconstruction. That senator, of course, was Strom Thurmond of South Carolina. This is how he described the Civil Rights Act of 1957 during his now notorious filibuster of that historic law. He said, and I quote, I think the bill which is under consideration is unconstitutional. I think it's invalid. I think we are doing a useless thing. 
Well, Madam President, the truth was just the opposite. The blatant discrimination of Jim Crow laws was an affront to our Constitution, a stain on our national character, and a threat to our standing in the world. The Civil Rights Act of 1957, which Strom Thurmond filibustered, broke the death grip of Jim Crow on the American democracy and led the way a few years later to even more sweeping equality laws, including the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Today, nearly 65 years after Strom Thurmond's marathon defense of Jim Crow, the filibuster is still making a mockery of American democracy. The filibuster is still being misused by some senators to block legislation urgently needed and supported by a strong majority of the American people. There's one major difference now, though, when it comes to filibusters from the days of Strom Thurmond and his long-winded defense of segregation. Strom Thurmond had to sacrifice personally his comfort for his misguided beliefs. He had to actually speak without sitting on the floor for more than 24 hours to maintain his filibuster. In his day, if you sat down to take a rest or left the floor, the filibuster was over. Today, it's not the same. Senators can literally phone in a filibuster. All a senator has to do is to tell the staff working in the cloakroom what their intention is as to a filibuster, and then the message is delivered to the floor, and another bill is sent to the Senate's overflowing legislative graveyard. This is what hitting legislative rock bottom looks like. Today's filibuster has turned the world's most deliberative body into one of the world's most ineffectual bodies. We are like the giant in Gulliver's Travel, tied down by our own legislative red tape, unable to respond to crises and the clear wishes of the American people. Defenders of the filibuster will tell you that it's essential for American democracy. The opposite's true. Today's filibuster undermines democracy. By eroding people's faith in the ability of democracy to solve problems that matter the most, misuse of the filibuster may accidentally open the door to autocrats, would-be dictators, who falsely promise to deliver results even if they ignore all of democracy's rules. Here's a place where I can actually say that I, I have, am in some agreement with Dick Durbin. I believe the filibuster is something that needs to be there and should stay. But I also agree that you ought to be on the Senate floor and you ought to be able to, you have to talk for 24 hours and 18 minutes to make your case, like Strom Thurmond did. You need to be able to, to, to hold that floor and not basically be able to call in and hold up legislation without it cost coming through some personal sacrifice to you. You know, you, you can't have government ground to a halt. So and to me, to some extent, there's your compromise. Protect the filibuster itself, but make it what it was, where you actually have to hold the floor, which was its original purpose. The purpose of the filibuster is to contribute to the Senate's status as being the world's greatest deliberative legislative body. The filibuster is a rule that allows for indefinite debate in the United States Senate. Anyone can debate a bill as long as they want to debate a bill. Uh, that is until three-fifths of the members of the Senate vote to end debate through a mechanism called closure. In one form or another, the filibuster has always existed in the Senate. Senators had the right to speak indefinitely and to extend debate as long as any one senator chose. The filibuster is certainly an important part of the Senate's history and a part of its rule. It's supposed to be a different kind of legislative body, one in which extended, unlimited debate is the norm. From its beginning, the Senate was a place where any one senator could continue the debate on a legislative proposal as long as he or she chose. And the final question on a legislative matter was achieved only by unanimous consent. This required senators to do the hard work of actually being on the Senate floor and continuing debate. Just a little over a hundred years ago, I believe it was in 1917, the Senate adopted its first cloture mechanism. Originally, 
cloture required two-thirds supermajority. And a, a few decades ago, that was changed again to bring it to where it is now under Rule 22, which is that three-fifths of the senators, or 60 out of 100, can vote to bring debate to a close. But the underlying principle has remained essentially the same throughout the history of the Senate. The crux of the controversy surrounding the filibuster really relates to the abuse of the process to bring about delay and to avoid debate, rather than using the filibuster to fulfill its intended purpose, which is to extend and promote debate. Article 1 of the Constitution is clear in giving each House of Congress the authority to develop its own rules of procedure. Now, whether or not it's used entirely in a manner consistent with the Constitution may be a different question. Some people have started to conflate the question of how many votes it takes to end debate with how many votes it takes to pass a legislative measure. Part of this is due to a misunderstanding of how the Senate rules have been used, and part of this is due to an abuse of the filibuster mechanism over time. It's become more controversial as it has been more routinely invoked, and even more controversial as it has become routinely invoked for the purpose of delay rather than for the purpose of extending actual debate. When members see it as simply a delay mechanism uh, or an impediment to actual debate, it undercuts the very purpose for which it was created. When it becomes the norm and people just start to anticipate that you have to have 60 votes to pass anything, it starts to appear unconstitutional. That's really not the case. It takes 60 votes to close debate. There are other ways of bringing debate to a close. The filibuster if used properly, pushes the Senate towards legislative consensus. That's the whole idea behind it, is to bring people together and to allow members to state their objections, to offer up improvements, and eventually to get to the point where they decide further debate isn't necessary. It's served our nation well, and I think it has, for most of the history of our republic, done what it was supposed to do. Your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. us on either side want to live in a scorched earth Senate. The institution and the American people deserve a lot better. But there's no doubt, none. That's what we'd see if Democrats tear up this pivotal rule. It would become immediately and painfully clear to the Democratic majority that they had indeed just broken the Senate. This gambit would not speed the Democrats' ambitions. It would de delay them terribly. And it would hamstring the Biden presidency over a power grab, which the president has spent decades warning against and still opposes. Finally, at some point, the shoe would find its way to the other foot.
when Republicans next control the government, we'd be able to repeal every bill that had just been rammed through. And we'd set about defending the unborn, exploring domestic energy, unleashing free enterprise, defunding sanctuary cities, securing the border, protecting workers' paychecks from union bosses. You get the picture. But a few years later, Democrats would try to flip it all back. So instead of building stable consensus, we'd be chaotically swapping party platforms, swinging wildly between opposite visions that would guarantee half the country is miserable and resentful at any given time. We would have inherited resilient institutions but left behind a chaotic mess. Mitch McConnell is so right about what would happen if we took away a tool like the filibuster and left it to these two extremes that had taken over both political parties to set the platform and direction of the country. That's not going to stop this fight that's begun to ensue because right now it's the Democrats, it's been Republicans before, but they see this opportunity to grab power. And that's what I would caution people about when they hear you know, this very uh, inflammatory rhetoric coming from the Democratic Party about the racist history of the filibuster. This is really a way to, to uh, bait and switch you into supporting getting rid of the filibuster, and we don't want to do that. Uh, and it's led, led already to a tough debate. You want to honor John? Let's honor him by revitalizing the law that he was willing to die for. And by the way, naming it the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, that is a fine tribute. But John wouldn't want us to stop there, just trying to get back to where we already were. Once we pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, we should keep marching to make it even better by making sure every American is automatically registered to vote, including former inmates who've earned their second chance. By adding polling places and expanding early voting and making Election Day a national holiday so if you are somebody who's working in a factory or you're a single mom who's got to go to her job, and doesn't get time off, you can still cast your ballot by guaranteeing that every American citizen has equal representation in our government, including the American citizens who live in Washington, D.C. and in Puerto Rico. They're Americans. by ending some of the partisan gerrymandering so that all voters have the power to choose their politicians, not the other way around. And if all this takes eliminating the filibuster, another Jim Crow relic, in order to secure the God-given rights of every American, then that's what we should do. Let me translate what he just said, not to secure the God-given right of every American, but to get my agenda through Congress. That is the goal of getting the filibuster. And he just listed that whole agenda off to you, and some of it sounds perhaps great because it's about civil rights and, and voter rights and all that, but some of it maybe not. That doesn't sound too great if it's about the rest of that laundry list of issues he wants to get passed. He knows that, that, that you're going to have opposition to that, and the quickest way to undercut that opposition is to get rid of the filibuster so they got no say, and then you can cram it down 51 to 49. Uh, the throats of the American people who may be opposed to it. The filibuster forces compromise, and that is the part of this that they're not telling you, and they're trying to couch it under this guise of let's let's stir up racial hatred and let's stir up, uh, you know, uh, you know, that kind of argument. 
So understand what you're listening to when you when you listen to stuff like this, from whether it's President Obama or President Trump. But in this case, it's President Obama. Quite a bit, Allie. And a number of new issues confronting the Biden administration are beginning to challenge the president's campaign promises for the top spot in what is becoming a limited legislative queue, now stacked with immigration reform, gun control, infrastructure, and voting rights legislation that aims to reverse state efforts that could limit Democrats' turnout in future elections. Biden said that last goal had particular urgency. What I'm worried about is how un-American this whole initiative is. It's sick. It's sick. Deciding in some states that you cannot bring water to people standing in line waiting to vote. Deciding that you're going to end voting at 5 o'clock when working people are just getting off work. Deciding that there will be no absentee ballots under the most rigid circumstances. Democrats for the People Act would make no excuse absentee ballots a right and would federalize much of a state's handling of a presidential election. It stands no chance in the Senate where it needs support from 60 senators to override the minority's veto power and move past debate otherwise known as the filibuster. The number of times senators have filed to hold up a bill reached a record last Congress. Mr. Biden had suggested reforming that process to make it harder. Today, he said he'd go beyond reform if there's complete lockdown, but declined to say how far he'd go. It's been abused from the time it came into being by an extreme way in the last 20 years. Let's deal with the abuse first. You're moving closer to eliminating the filibuster. Is that correct? I answered your question. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has said everything, everything is on the table. Allie? And now, sadly, President Biden is, is biting into this. Hopefully he won't go full on into trying to kill the filibuster. I, I agree with you. There should be some reform. I like the idea that having to get down there and talk and and not leave the floor, but understand that this will cause huge problems. And you got to remember something else. The Democrats did this before when they changed the filibuster rules on judicial appointments, and, and they came to, to wish they hadn't done that. We're now living in the aftermath of a nuclear strike, metaphorically speaking, of course, in the politics lead. Senate Democrats really did it. They changed the rules so that now it only takes a simple majority vote of 51 to break a filibuster on executive and judicial nominees instead of 60 votes under the old rules. It's been referred to as the nuclear option, and it went something like this on the Senate floor. Democrats pulling a strange love out of frustration over Republicans blocking President Obama's nominees to an unprecedented degree. And today's action did not require both parties turning the launch keys. President Obama today applauded the move, claiming that the obstructionism from the other side has gotten so bad there was little choice. Today's pattern of obstruction, it just isn't normal. I support the step a majority of senators today took to change the way that Washington is doing business. Hmm. That's interesting. You know who might not agree with President Obama? Senator Obama in 2005, when the Republicans were trying to do the same thing as the majority power party to push President George W. Bush's nominees through. Back, of course, it, then it was pronounced nuclear option. Here's what the future president said about that in 2005. But if the right of free and open debate is taken away from the minority party and the millions of Americans who ask us to be their voice, I fear that the already partisan atmosphere in Washington will be poisoned to the point where no one will be able to agree on anything. Republicans obviously today are furious about this rule change. It takes away one of the most powerful weapons in the Senate for the minority party. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell today reminded his Democratic colleagues that they might not like this rule change so much if they find themselves in the minority in the future. But rather than learn from past precedents, on judicial nominations that they themselves set. Democrats now want to set another one. Now, I have no doubt that if they do, they will come to regret that one as well. You know who might disagree with Senator McConnell? Senator McConnell, back in 2005, 
Back then, he thought it was a swell idea since his party was in the majority and was sick of democratic obstructionism. The current Senate majority intends to do what the majority in the Senate has often done, to reform Senate procedure by a simple majority vote. Despite the incredulous protestations of our Democratic colleagues, the Senate has repeatedly adjusted its rules as circumstances dictate. Do you like this where I show a clip from today and then a clip from 2005 where the person says the exact opposite? I could do this for the whole show. There's no end to the clips of senators contradicting their former stances on the nuclear option ever since control of the Senate shifted in 2007. Welcome to the reality of what's going on. This is about whose ox is getting gored, who's in power, who's not. And the filibuster is a tool that needs to stay. Whether it has some reform to it to go back in the days of strong thermal, you had to actually stay on the floor the whole time, I, I could see. But we, the, the filibuster needs to stay as a tool to help the minority because it forces deliberation and it forces compromise. And as you can see, it, it, who's ever in the minority is the one who's going to be screaming and needs to stay. And whoever's in the majority is who's trying to get rid of it because it's a power grab. Simple as that. Mr. President, is the uh, Senate in a quorum call? We are. I would ask unanimous consent the quorum call be lifted. Without objection. Mr. President, talk continues to swirl uh, about eliminating the legislative filibuster here in the United States Senate. The Democrat leader has threatened that if Republicans don't vote the way he wants them to vote on legislation, eliminating the filibuster will be on the table. In the interview where he issued his threat, the Democrat leader made it very clear that he's not inviting Republicans to work with Democrats on legislation. This isn't an invitation for both parties to sit down at the table and arrive at an agreement that both parties can support. No, this is an invitation for Republicans to support exactly what Democrats want or face the consequences. And Mr. President, it's ironic that the Democrat leader would be taking that position today because this is what he was saying back in 2017 about the legislative filibuster. This is the Democratic leader saying, the legislative filibuster is the most important distinction between the Senate and the House. Let's find a way to further protect the 60-vote rule for legislation. So Democratic leader was very supportive of this uh, back in 2017 when they were using it extensively to try and stop or slow Republican legislation. The assistant Democratic leader, the Democratic whip, uh, Senator Durbin from Illinois, said this in January 2018, I can tell you that would be the end of the Senate as it was originally devised and created going back to our founding fathers. Going back to our founding fathers, referencing the legislative filibuster and how important it was historically here in the United States Senate. Well, Mr. President, about that same time, uh, 2017, 61 senators out of 100 here in the United States Senate, 61 out of 100 senators signed a letter in which they supported retention of the legislative filibuster. And in fact, it goes on to say that we are writing to urge you, and this is to the Senate leaders at the time, Senators McConnell and Schumer, to support our efforts to preserve existing rules, practices, and traditions as they pertain to the right of members to engage in extended debate on legislation before the United States Senate. Senators have expressed a variety of opinions about the appropriateness of limiting debate when we are considering judicial and executive branch nominations, regardless of our past disagreements on that issue, we are united, united in our determination to preserve the ability of members to engage in extended debate when bills are on the Senate floor. 61 senators, including over 30 Democrats, Mr. President, on record as recently as 2017 in support of the legislative filibuster. Over 30 Democrat senators, including the Democratic leader and the Democratic whip. Well, what's changed? Because now they've done an abrupt reversal, complete 180. 
I mean, they're spinning around so fast it makes your, makes your eyes glaze over, Mr. President. Uh, what an incredible versatility of conviction they've demonstrated on this issue. And you think about the reason for it. What are they arguing? Well, they're saying the Republicans have been misusing the filibuster. Well, that's a little bit ironic, given the fact the Republicans have been a majority for the past six years. Republicans took the majority in January of 2015 and held it until January of 2021. So for the past six years, it's been the Democrats who were in the minority. They would be the ones exercising the legislative filibuster, and they used it extensively. They used it extensively last year to block legislation repeatedly over and over and over again. And Republicans at the time were under a lot of pressure to get rid of the legislative filibuster, including by the President of the United States, over and over and over, saying Republicans need to get rid of the legislative filibuster. Republicans, being consistent in their position, those who signed of the 61 senators, Republicans who signed this letter, including me, have been consistent in our position, even when we were in the majority, even when the Democrats were using the filibuster to block legislation that we were trying to advance, that we needed to maintain the filibuster because it was important to the institution of the Senate. And it, and it, it required bipartisan cooperation. It required a level of comedy to get legislation passed, and it made sure that the minority was represented in legislative solutions that were produced by the United States Senate. We've been consistent in that position. Even when it meant taking on our administration, our president, over, over, over again. So the Democrats' argument now is that we have to get rid of the legislative filibuster because Republicans have been misusing it. How was that even possible? We were in the majority. The legislative filibuster is used, it's a tool used by the minority. It was used by the Democrats over and over and over again the past six years. But their argument now is that we've got, we, the Senate's not functioning, the Senate's not producing legislation. Really? <clears throat> well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, the discussion continues on the other side about blowing up uh, the Senate by eliminating the legislative uh, filibuster. As some of you may have noticed, I laid out this morning that in a 50-50 Senate, that's not quite the panacea for the left that they think it is. Uh, if you take away the 60-vote threshold, you still have a 50-50 Senate. And the minority, given the way the Senate operates, is not toothless. For example, it takes 51 members to have a quorum, and the vice president doesn't count. Uh, the Senate, for those of you who observe it every day, which is most of you, uh, basically operates on unanimous consent. Only one senator is required to deny unanimous consent. Why would those kinds of uh, reprisals, if you will, be under consideration? Uh, simply because fracturing the legislative filibuster changes the Senate institutionally forever. This is no small matter. I, as you recall, uh, said no to President Trump on numerous occasions uh, to his suggestion that the Republican majority in the Senate do the same thing. He tweeted against me. Uh, I stood up for the institution. At least so far, it doesn't appear the Democratic majority leader is going to stand up for the institution. They continue to wave this threat over the minority, and our anticipation is that this is designed to ratchet up the pressure on Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema, who've made it clear that they think the way the Senate functions should not be changed. And so we admire their courage. I expect it will be tested over the course of this two-year period. In the meantime, I would advise the majority to look for things on a bipartisan basis that we might do working together. A good example of that was the way we did five COVID bills uh, last Congress in a time of divided government with a Republican uh, majority. 
as Lear points out, that it seems like the Democrats uh, have chosen, instead of working on bipartisan bills, to try and find as many partisan things as they can do. Um, they continue to report bills from the House over to the Senate that they know uh, don't have bipartisan support, whether that's uh, elections, or whether that's uh, guns and all the issues uh, surrounding that, or, uh, or whether it's the issue of immigration, which uh, I think, too, is coming to the forefront now. And on, on that point, um, I would simply say that uh, the president, when he first got to office on the first day, immediately rescinded, revoked the emergency declaration with respect to the border. And um, since that time, things have deteriorated quickly. Uh, they've relaxed enforcement. They have quit building the border wall. They have, um, you know, quit deportations. Quit deportations. There are so many areas where, uh, when it comes to the border, uh, this current administration is uh, making much, much worse what's going on down there. And as a consequence, uh, you're seeing all kinds of uh, unaccompanied minors, asylum seekers, people at the border. Um, it's a very uh, I think unsafe and uh, chaotic situation down there that will, that will only get worse if they continue uh, down the current path. Uh, it strikes me at least that, um, that the policies that were in place before uh, when the previous administration uh, was in office they kept stability at the border, there was order, there was discipline, and if that isn't restored very quickly this thing is going gonna, is gonna to continue to unravel. And uh, evidence of that is that the administration, as I mentioned, when they came in, they, they rescinded the uh, emergency declaration, and yet now they are sending FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, to the border, which suggests they also recognize that this is an emergency. Um, I hope that uh, on the leader's point, there are um, enough Democrats who recognize the value of what the Senate contributes, the importance of giving the minorities a voice in the process, of the minority party, I should say, and of giving, um, making sure that there is at least some attempt to cooperate and find common ground in bipartisanship. That is the essence of the Senate. That's the way the Senate was designed. That's the way it's worked throughout history. And blowing up the legislative filibuster in order to accomplish some short-term agenda will only backfire and create a lot of long-term pain uh, for the country and for the party that does it. It is a mutually assured uh, destruction in terms of the path. The filibuster is something that's been used by both sides when they were in the minority. It's something that keeps the Senate going, and uh, it makes it a deliberative body. It gives the minority some say in what they're trying to do. It's been used effectively by senators from, you know, Strom Thurmond, who they talk about and, and always trying to make a case against because of his fighting of civil rights. It's been used by Ted Cruz, who's about as far to the right as you can get, and Bernie Sanders, too. I intend to speak in support of defunding Obamacare until I am no longer able to stand. And anyone who is trying to make this a battle of personalities is trying to change the topic from the topic that should matter. Whether or not Obamacare is helping the American people. Mr. President, if you focus on the substance, the evidence is overwhelming. This law is a train wreck. Anyone who votes to cut off debate on this bill is voting to allow Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid to fully fund Obamacare. That's a vote that I think is a profound mistake. Now, if you will forgive me, I want to take the opportunity to read two bedtime stories to my girls, but there's a point to this also. And the point is very simple. The urgency we have and should feel is because of our kids. Do you like green eggs and ham? I do not like them, Sam I am. I do not like green eggs and ham. Would you like them here or there? I would not like them here or there. I would not like them anywhere. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam I am. Mark my words. If Congress doesn't act to defund Obamacare to stop this train wreck before the end of the president's administration, unions are going to end up getting an exemption from Obamacare. It's going to be everyone that's a political friend of the administration that has juice, that has power, will get exemptions. And the people that are left, you have nothing to worry about unless you don't happen to have several high-paid Washington, D.C. lobbyists on your staff. Unless you happen just to be 
an Hispanic entrepreneur, a single mom, a hardworking American trying to provide for his or her family, then maybe you have something to worry about. Because you're not going to get the exemption because what the Senate has been saying to you is exemptions for everybody else, but not for hardworking American families. Mr. President, I believe it doesn't apply to everyone. It should apply to no one. Mr. President, um, as I think uh, everyone knows, uh, the President of the United States, President Obama, and the Republican leadership have reached an agreement on a very significant tax bill. Uh, In my view, uh, the agreement that they reached is a bad deal for the American people. I think we can do better. And I am here today to take a strong stand against this bill. And I intend to tell my colleagues and the nation exactly why I am in opposition to this bill. You can call what I'm doing today whatever you want. You can call it a filibuster. You can call it a very long speech. I'm not here to set any great records uh, or to, to make a spectacle. I am simply here today to take as long as I can to explain to the American people the fact that we have got to do a lot better than this this agreement uh, provides. Now, let me just enumerate some of the reasons that I am opposed to this agreement. First, as everybody knows, this nation has a record-breaking $13.8 trillion national debt at the same time as the middle class is collapsing and poverty is increasing. And, Mr. President, I think it's important that we say a word, because I'm not sure that a lot of Americans necessarily know this, about how we got to where we are. The legislative filibuster and the filibuster in general is a tool. What you're seeing right now with all the claims of it is a racist, is, is, is a racist history or, or that it needs to go because of this gridlock it, it is really something about a far larger problem. 20, 25 years ago, 40 years ago, in the era of Bob Dole, Robert Byrd, Dan Inouye, Strom Thurmond, uh, Ted Stevens, uh, Frank Longberg. You wouldn't have seen an attempt to get rid of the filibuster because they knew it was a, 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 a very important component of it, making the Senate a deliberative body in which the minority will have some say. But what you're seeing now, as we've been talking throughout this entire series, is the extremes are taking over. And the thing about zealots and extremism is they don't mind taking the minority out, taking away your ability to talk, taking away your ability to, to, to make your case. Because the only thing they care about is getting what they want. And that is what you see happening in this debate today going on about legislative filibuster. It is about, in this case, the left's desire to force an agenda down the throats of the American people and to make sure that the Republican Party doesn't have any say about it. And don't, don't think that she won't be on the other foot if the tide turns, because it will be. But that's the difference between the, the political leadership we had 30 and 40 years ago and what we have today. We need things to become less partisan. Maybe not bipartisan, but nonpartisan in how in our approach to how we deal with things. And we've got to rein the excesses in. We need that great revolution of the middle. The folks either that are center right, center left, the folks who can make a deal. We need them back. I'm Ryan Wallace. Thanks for joining us here on Bridging the Political Gap. Until next time, so long for now.
Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now.